I'm Dr. Michelle Fowler, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. As an astrophysicist, I sometimes have a different relationship with space-based disaster movies than members of the general public. Now, I actually enjoy science fiction, and I also like a good action movie. Something with volcanoes and tidal waves and things like that can make for a good couple of hours. But often the science is so bad that I find I can't really connect with the movie. I'm just too distracted by what's wrong. And there were two famous movies that came out uh, all the way back in the, the 1990s. And they were Armageddon. Japan's gone. Australia's wiped out. Half the world's population will be incinerated by the heat blast, and the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. And also Deep Impact. Now, if this comet continues on its path around the sun and keeps its present course, sometime on August 16th, roughly a year from now, there's a chance that we might have impact. But to my surprise, when I was making this episode, I learned that not all scientists feel the same way about those movies. Oh, I love them. There's, I'm on the edge of my seat, and in Deep Impact, I cried. In Armageddon, I was, I, there were sad parts in Armageddon too, but I was fascinated by the creativity of the producers of, of Armageddon. They're great movies. This is Dr. Lucy McFadden. I'm in the Planetary Systems Lab here at Goddard Space Flight Center, where I'm uh, actively engaged in research related to small bodies in the solar system, and I'm co-investigator of NASA's Dawn mission. Now, the Dawn mission is designed to do just that, investigate small bodies in the solar system. And this translates into, you guessed it, asteroids. So maybe it's no wonder that Lucy likes seeing her life's work play out on the big screen, with Hollywood's endless special effects budgets illustrating the possibilities. But it turns out that asteroids can offer lots of drama on their own, no collision with Earth required. In September 2007, Dawn's spacecraft blasted into space, past Mars, headed toward the asteroid belt. Its intended targets, two obscure rocks, the asteroids Vesta and Ceres, about 126 million miles from Earth. And what the mission found was, well, maybe not Hollywood, but it was pretty amazing. And it may even reveal clues about how life started here on Earth. But before we get to all that, here's an origin story. Well, the asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter. There are hundreds of thousands of asteroids there orbiting the sun. Um, so four and a half billion years ago, when the solar system, the planets started to form. So basically, here's how it happened. Just after the solar system formed, there was a young sun surrounded by a disk of debris. And there really wasn't anything large at this point. But gravity began to bring things together to form the planets. And what the asteroids really are is a time capsule from this period. There were little bits of things that never got made into larger planets. The reason that happened in the case of the asteroid belt had a lot to do with Jupiter. Jupiter is the most massive planet in the solar system, and that meant that it basically ate up all of the planet-forming material around it. And not only that, the gravity of this giant planet started tugging apart anything that tried to form nearby. So the asteroid belt is this debris field left because Jupiter's gravity just gently tugged apart anything that tried to form there. And in fact, there isn't much material there at all today. 
if you took everything in the asteroid belt and combined it together, you would have less mass than our moon. So we have this debris cloud between Mars and Jupiter that's the asteroid belt, with Ceres and Vesta being the two largest ones. Our solar system actually has all kinds of interesting debris. Now, it's sort of funny to me because a lot of times we just use different words for where a chunk of space rock is found. When a small bit of asteroid is floating around somewhere up in space, we call it a meteoroid. And if it falls through the Earth's atmosphere, and and as it leaves that wonderful bright streak across the sky, we call that a meteor. And then if you actually manage to find the rock on the ground and pick it up, now you have a meteorite. But it's all the same thing. It's all a little chunk of the asteroid belt that found its way to Earth. So back to the Dawn mission. In July of 2011, the spacecraft is finally pulling up to the asteroid Vesta, and Lucy and her science team have a pretty good idea what to expect. We knew a lot about Vesta before we got there because we had samples from Vesta. Vesta happens to be the body that that sends us one out of seven meteorites that lands here on Earth. And people had studied those, so they knew the history of Vesta. That's right, and this is pretty amazing. Of all of the debris floating around our solar system that lands on Earth, about 14% of meteorites come from Vesta. So although we knew something about Vesta beforehand, because we had samples of Vesta, things that had fallen through our atmosphere and landed on the Earth, this was the first time Vesta became a place. And it's a really interesting body that was once volcanic. It had flowing lava on its surface, and it has a core and a crust, a mantle and a crust, sort of like a general planet. But yet it's only the size of the state of Texas. Um, So we orbited Vesta with five instruments, uh, cameras, spectrometer, a gamma ray detector to measure its elemental composition, and the spacecraft itself, one, two, three, four, four instruments, sorry. And then we went off and left Vesta and traveled through the solar system, went off to Ceres and matched orbits with Ceres in 2015. And we've been in orbit around Ceres uh, since then, exploring yet another small world that's uh, three times the distance from the sun as the Earth. Ceres is a dwarf planet, and we've been totally surprised by what we've seen there. So while Lucy and her team pretty much knew what to expect with Vesta, because of its insistence on sending meteorites our way, Ceres was a bit of a question mark. We don't have any rocks from Ceres in our meteorite collection. So exploring Ceres was a little bit more of a challenge because we didn't have a baseline upon which to build upon our knowledge. We knew so little about Ceres that even the simplest questions eluded us. Like, what is it made of? Are there mountains? Riverbeds? Dry oceans? This body was full of surprises. I mean, th- th- this this was an exciting time when you f- got your first look at, at yeah. Ceres. I yeah. mean, so so, so t- t- tell me the story. So you, well, you, Dawn's well, coming in. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Dawn's coming in. It's, it's really amazing. We get closer and closer and closer, and it takes days and months to get closer and closer and closer. And we got to Ceres, and I was expecting something dramatic on a large scale. Um, but I looked at it, and we said, oh, there, yes, it's round, so it's got a beautiful shape. And It's actually a little bit more inflated than being a complete ball. It's a blown-up beach ball. In fact, Lucy says, it turns out that Ceres looks a lot like our idea of a planet, except for something weird. There were these bright spots 
Um, people call them headlights. And we wanted to get the, you know, what's the composition from the bright spots with our spectrometer. We use a spectrometer to measure the colors of light reflecting off an object. And by looking very carefully at how much red light versus blue light versus green light comes out, we can tell whether something is made of hydrogen or whether it has water on it. You can do that even if you never get close enough to actually sample it just by looking at the patterns of light. But we kept on missing it. It took us time to try and target. And then the spacecraft said, OK, I'm tired. I need to take a nap. And it went into safe mode for a while. And, and then we missed the flyover of bright spots um, during the time the spacecraft needed to take a break. And I will say this was a difficult thing for me because, of course, at NASA, we were getting questions that this Absolutely. was a little bit too convenient. Right. That we just come up to Ceres, we see these mysterious bright areas, and all of a sudden our spacecraft isn't working real well and we need to take a little break. So, of course, we got questions from people that thought it was a conspiracy, right. that we were hiding something. And I even had the counterintelligence guy here at NASA ask me, what's, what's with those headlights? And I had to tell him that I didn't know. And I said, well, we just have to wait. Whether they liked it or not, the spacecraft went to sleep. Shh. So while the spacecraft was sleeping, checking its software, kind of like when you restart your computer, there was all kinds of speculation. Were those spots ice? Some type of metal? Was it light from an alien civilization colonizing our solar system? Once the Dawn spacecraft woke back up, we got some answers. The team determined that these bright spots are like salt flats. They are sodium-rich carbonates, which is the same material as water softener. And carbonates, Michelle, carbonates form only in the presence of liquid water. But right now, today, there's no evidence of, of water with these salt flats at all. The water is totally vaporized off. So it's just this residual deposit from a former water-rich slurry. But whenever you talk about a possible you know, presence of liquid water, that's kind of exciting. You know, that, that's, a, that's something that you wouldn't expect on an asteroid. I mean, is there any chance that there's any liquid water underneath that's still present? Well, that is the question that I want to get answered next. And we can't say definitively, but another paper just came out about the mass distribution beneath the surface that tells them that it's sort of lumpy and that Ceres has a, a condensed center core with something that's less dense on top of it. So it has, it has a mantle, it has layers. The core is probably this rocky material, but on top of it, the next layer is less dense and, and probably has lighter, lighter elements that have floated to the top. Um, and those lighter elements probably are water-bearing uh, rocks and minerals if not water itself. There's, there's so many places in, in the solar system where we're finding liquid water where we didn't expect it. Right. And when you think about the presence of liquid water on Ceres, which is something, it's a small body, you know, 600 miles across, there has to be some way to keep it warm. You know, right. it, otherwise it would just be ice, it would just be frozen. Right. L let's tell the story about why planets are warm inside to begin with. Well, it's, it's, it's the hot core, and what makes the core hot? When the planets condensed, the materials mixed up in them, the elements mixed up in them, are not all stable themselves. And some of the elements are naturally um, giving off heat. In other words, Ceres' core might act a lot like the Earth's, a hot chamber of heavy elements keeping the asteroid warm from within. 
So to recap, Lucy and the Dawn team have found salt flats on an asteroid. And that means at some point there was liquid water on Ceres. There may still be liquid water today. And the amazing thing is that asteroids are known to be full of organic molecules, things like amino acids, the building blocks of our proteins, and nucleobases, the stuff that makes up our DNA. Asteroids contain the building blocks of life and water. So the obvious question, could Ceres have life, even if it's very basic and single-celled organisms? Well, you know, we wonder. Um, I, I do think about it. and. You know, we don't know what the conditions are. We know that the water heats up and melts. So I do wonder whether there could be something trapped beneath the surface of Ceres that, where things are growing and multiplying and, and having a good old time without our knowing about it. So it's, it's, yeah, it is, it is possible. Once Lucy's team realized that liquid water could exist on Ceres, all of a sudden we were talking about something different. We were talking about a possible environment for life. And that meant that NASA's Office of Planetary Protection got involved. Whether it's a rover landing on a distant rocky world, robotic probes skimming the surface of liquid-spewing moons, or returning samples back to our own home planet from a faraway celestial object, the Office of Planetary Protection strives to protect all of the planets all of the time. It's not just our own planet. When you think, okay, it's an asteroid, it's a planetary protection officer, your immediate assumption is, well, she's gonna be really concerned with asteroids hitting the Earth. But in fact, what she was doing was trying to protect an environment that might possibly have life. Exactly. So the Dawn spacecraft is still out there, orbiting Ceres, gathering data. And the thing that amazes me is Ceres was nothing like what we expected. All of a sudden, there was the possibility of liquid water, maybe even life on an asteroid. And to me, this is why asteroids are so fascinating. People seem to think of them as objects of death and destruction. You know, send Bruce Willis out to go explode one, that sort of thing. But in truth, asteroids have the story of life inside them. The water in your body is from asteroids. The organic material that makes you up probably arrived here originally on an asteroid. So far from being avatars of death, asteroids are the beginning of life. This mission to the stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. If you like this episode and want to hear more, check us out at orbital.prx.org or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. This is Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.